Players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Armageddon, Urnum de Jinn, Spectral Bears, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, and that's to hold up their legacy and the search for eternal glory. Welcome to episode 108 of the Eternal Glory podcast, The New Faces of Tempo. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben Yu. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our new patrons and YouTube members since last time. We got The Nomad, Akalef, and Bill H. Thank you, and everyone else who's already subscribed for keeping this thing on the air. If you like what you hear, and you want 50% more of it every episode go join it's pretty affordable and it keeps us going this week you get to hear about all sorts of nonsense from vegas and there's some good stuff in there including a 1 a.m escape room and i may or may not be haunted all right so this week we're kind of starting to gear up towards eternal weekend we're starting to think about that and this week, we want to talk about tempo, but not sort of at the conceptual level. We want to actually talk about decks, because as of the time of recording this episode of the podcast, four of the top decks in Legacy are actually tempo-oriented, as sort of evidenced on the MTG Goldfish standings. So today, we're going to dig into Delver. We're going to take a look at the blue-black scam slash shadow deck list. We're going to take a look at the blue-green sort of card advantage tempo engine and the crashing footfalls slash teamer cascade decklist as well. Right. And not only is tempo four of the top five decks, it's four very different tempo decks, only one of which actually plays Delver of Secrets within several of these camps. There are divergent builds meaningfully divergent builds. I don't mean like some have an unholy heat, some have a chain lightning. I mean like meaningfully different engines across these four archetypes. There are at least six or seven different decks and they all kind of change what is normal because it's pretty normal actually to have three or four tempo decks at the top of Legacy. They're just like the four different color combinations of Delver you can play. But that's not what's going on here. I think we should probably make some attempt to define what a tempo deck does. This is one of the most argued over terms in Magic. Some would argue it means nothing. Some would argue it means anything. Uh, if you have ever watched D MTG stream, Card Draw is Tempo. There's a bunch of memes about what Tempo actually is. Generally, I think for the purposes of simplicity, I like to define Tempo as a deck that finds ways to get extra mana early 
in exchange for longevity later. Uh, and what I mean by that is the player who spends the most mana tends to win a game of magic. They use free spells, pitch spells, things like days, things like force of will to get ahead early. But then eventually those picked up land drops and those exiled cards will catch them later if they don't convert early. If the opponent gets stable and is able to play a longer game where they have better things to spend their mana on. Tempo just kind of abuses the timing of the game, just shoves the game into a smaller can and hopes that the opponent can't get out of there. Tempo literally means time. Uh, if we're Phil, confirm for me. You're a Latin expert here. Well, you see, ultimately it comes from the third declension Latin noun, tempus temporis, which is, of course, a neuter noun, and I can confirm that it does mean time. Thank you, Latin teacher Phil. I hope you give all of your lessons in that voice. <laughs> and and your students have never actually heard your, your human voice. I do have a couple of uh, different teacher voices. I, I have a, a specific, I'm pretending to be a student question. Uh, this student is always named Timmy. And Timmy questions like this that's the jim gaffigan thing jim gaffigan does that way he like talks to himself from the position of the crowd like makes a joke about diarrhea and he's like wow this guy always has diarrhea i sure do and he just has conversations so good good device it's made a successful career for that guy anyway <laughs> we have defined tempo both to its latin root and how it applies to magic okay carry on phil you're about to talk about a uh, delver delver of secrets was it yeah let's go ahead and talk about our good friend grixis delver delver for i don't know the past 10 years or so has generally speaking been the top deck in Legacy. And after the printing of Orcish Bowmaster, the Delver decks have primarily, primarily shifted into Grixis colors. But of the sort of tempo decks here, Grixis Delver is the only one that is still like doing the true Delver game of playing the actual card Delver of Secrets. And even within these Grixis decks, the Delvers aren't guaranteed to be a four of anymore. Delver, the literal card itself, is decreasing in popularity in Legacy as we just get more pushed cards that slot really well into these blue tempo decks. Phil, I'm going to nitpick real quick. You said the last 10 years. That would be going back to 2013. The heyday of Canadian Threshold started in 2010. So it's been longer than that. And if you go back 20 years, back to the very beginning of Legacy, granted 2004, not you know 2003 or whatever, but Query and Dryad was everywhere. The Miracle Grow deck that the Hatfields popularized down in Virginia. And we're sort of at that once again today we'll come back to that later but it's been 20 years of days wasteland plus efficient threat defining the format yeah we're going to talk about query and dryad later in this episode i promise because we have a strictly better one now but that's for later yeah uh phil said that this grixis delver deck this really is the one deck of all these things that isn't trying to assemble anything cute there is no synergistic engine that kicks in at some point in the game it's actually just a bunch of spells that are really good on rate. A bunch of three power flyers for one mana. You get Orcish Boat Master, you get Burktide Regent, and then you get Lightning Bolt, Brainstorm, Ponder, Unholy Heat, Days Force, Ding, Wham Bam, there's your deck, in you go. Blue Jund. Yeah, Blue Jund, I guess. That's called Grixis. What are we even doing here? Why would you say those words? <laughs> uh, but okay, and this is a deck with Delver, Days, and Wasteland. We're gonna, generally Days and Wasteland, Bryant just shouted it out, that's going to be at the core of a lot of tempo decks in Legacy, no matter how they're actually trying to win, whether they play Delver or not. Frequently seen together, but this is the full Holy Trinity here of Delver Days in Wasteland. And one interesting thing about these lists, is it Delver 
is still a top 20, top 30 deck in the format without the Black Splash, but Grixis with the Black Splash is the number one deck, which I think the data has borne out that it's worth the Black Splash here. But these decks have chilled out quite a bit since Bowmaster was first printed. I brought Grixis Delver to Tolarian Community College. Uh, Lord of the Rings had just came out when I did my feature with Anzi over there. And the deck I gave to the professor to play had Thoughtseize in it. It had Knight's Whisper in it. There were a bunch of black cards that weren't Orcish Bowmaster. It was like a true Grixis deck. The build now is actually just is a Delver with Black Splash for Bowmaster. There is not another black card in most main decks. I've seen like maybe one Children's Edict in the main. Usually not though. And then the sideboard will have like a Plague Engineer and an Edict. This is as light as you can get on the Black Splash while still allowing you to play Orcish Bowmaster versus these pure Grixis things that we were seeing earlier on. Yeah, you will very occasionally still see something like a, a Snuff Out or a Thoughtseize in the main deck. I know one of the challenge finishes over the weekend had those. I expect these decks to be blue-red plus Bowmasters in game one most of the time. And Snuff Out is falling out of favor too because it doesn't kill Troll of Kazadoom, which is a card we're going to talk about in our next section. Snuff Out was the tempo thing remember when folks had solved the is it delver mirror by playing one underground scene and a couple snuff outs to just beat the mirror with free interaction that was before bowmaster even came out people were doing that that just doesn't kill the threats it needs to kill anymore so dismember has kind of taken the nod over snuff out in a lot of the decks that were snuffing out and you don't need a black deck to play dismember so i don't count that as a black card in decks that could be is it otherwise in the pre-show i talked a little bit about how i've been grinding legacy i've been playing it a ton and since the release of wilds of old drain i've been playing tons of beseech the mirror combo and i track all of my data somebody asked me about delver matchups the other day so i decided to dig into my delver numbers and i was like oh i have faced the rug delver deck with questing dryad 11 times and i was like i wonder how many times i face grixis a fat zero in leagues right now it is all the rug tempo deck and and then I was combing through the legacy challenge results from this past weekend. First place, third place, eighth place, all Grixis Delver. And I was just like, wow, what a disparity between leagues and the challenges between Grixis and this rug build right now. And I just thought that was a pretty interesting thing. And why not share it? Yeah, I agree. I can't remember the last time I actually paired into Grixis Delver in a league, but it, this is a thing that always happens. Like you just play against like Reanimator three times in a league and then it doesn't show up in challenges because it doesn't hold up in Swiss tournaments. Like league leagues are where people are trying the new stuff, which is the rug deck and challenges is where they dedicate their weekend to winning matches, which is what you do with the Grixis deck. And I'm not saying rug can't catch up. I actually have something really exciting. I want to talk about a little bit when we get to the, the blue green tempo decks, but yeah, Grixis it's tried and true when it's time to stop messing around and stop experimenting and you got a tournament to win go to the the known thing that is successful the next thing we're going to talk about is the scam deck list um and this non-intuitive name refers to pitching grief and then reanimating it or otherwise bringing it back and this scam package is seeing tons of legacy play you will see it in combo decks you will see it in tempo decks you will see it in these sort of black prison chalice of the void style decks it is becoming one of the better things to do like one of the better packages that exists in legacy rather than something fringe that you sometimes see 
Yep. And this is a Day's Wasteland deck. However, it's not a Delver deck. And there are two different builds here. Demir Shadow uses Troll of Kazadoom and Reanimate to reduce its life total quickly to get a big Death Shadow going. And that it's backed by four Thoughtseize and the cheap permission we expect, the Days of the Force of Will. Meanwhile, Demir Scam... Uh, which, if you're looking for these lists on MTG Goldfish, they're sometimes categorized as Demir Aggro, or just as UB. Uh, these can be hard to find specifically. It doesn't play Shadow. Instead, it has 4 Grief, which ups the cheap disruption and doubles your payoffs for a reanimate. And these are two meaningfully different decks. Orcish Bowmaster and Murktide Regent are in both, of course. And if you want to hear more about this... Uh, Episode 106 was in Grief's Shadow. If you missed that one, we talk about Grief a lot and what it's done to formats and the decks that are built around it. You can check that out. But I, this is one of the things I was talking about at the top of the episode. Uh, we have Demir Tempo, which I think it's really impressive that there are two equally viable and meaningfully different shells using the same two colors and many of the same cards. It actually sort of presents some interesting gameplay patterns when you're on the other side of the table because sometimes in the early turns you can't always tell these two decks apart so you sometimes don't know how valuable is this source to plowshares do i need to save this later for x creature or y creature or do i just blow this on the bowmaster right now i don't know that i personally have enough reps in with both of them to give you the detailed breakdown of like okay this is how i approach this matchup if it's this one versus this one but i i definitely have thought i identified the deck correctly and then i got caught off guard by something a few times yeah one of the biggest spots where it matters to know what you're playing against is chip damage like if you have your own orcish bowmaster or if you have a dragon's rage channeler without delirium and they don't have a blocker, just putting one point on Death Shadow might unlock two cards in their hand. Putting one point on Grief Scam, that's one reanimate maybe they can't cast later. So it's actually a huge divergence of do I poke, uh, like if you're elves, like do you get in with your Nettle Sentinel or not? Or do you try to keep their Death Shadows in their hand and just wait for the combo turn? And that is really tough to, to tell sometimes. It seems like lists have mostly settled down to they have Grief or they have Shadow. There was a time. And maybe even just a month ago when we did that in Grief Shadow episode, I think we were talking about Grief Scam in Death Shadow decks. And it seems like they've diverged and kind of settled into, if you see a Grief, you might not have to worry about Shadow, or at least on the numbers. I mean, maybe some Maniacs still out there doing all of it, but on the numbers, if you see Grief, you don't have to worry about Shadow. If you see Shadow, you don't have to worry about Grief. But if you see Shadow, they're going to have four Thoughtseize. So your hand still isn't safe. It's just... Maybe you don't need to bring in your dedicated graveyard hate because they're only doing it with four cards rather than eight. And one the of the subtle other... difference between them that I've found, and I'm not saying this is true for every list, but it's just something subtle that I've noticed. The Demir Scam deck tends to have Mystic Sanctuary. Most of the Shadow decks in my experience do not play the Sanctuary because they're playing an extra basic swamp or something like that. So out of Scam, I tend to respect the Mystic Sanctuary as a combo player just because I have to think, oh, do they have the ability to get back a force here? Well, I, I like the Mystic Sanctuary in the Scam deck specifically because that's your endgame with Sauron's Ransom, which doesn't tend to see as much play in the Shadow deck lists. Right, exactly. Uh, the Scam deck is doing more early. Remember, we kind of defined tempo, or at least an important aspect of tempo, as exchanging long-term res resources for short-term 
mana advantage and the scam deck with their griefs pitching two cards to take one of yours they gotta recoup that somehow if the game goes long something like sauron's ransom is how they're going to do that looping the sauron's ransom later with the mystic sanctuary that's how they get back in where death shadow is not built to do that because they don't need to because they have a lot more one for ones rather than one for twos and death shadow is just big as shit it's gonna get you if you're not ready for it uh, that's their plan to win also Watery Grave. That's probably the easiest way to tell because the scam deck is not trying to kill itself. It doesn't need to do that. It actively doesn't want to because it's based on reanimate. A Death Shadow player will usually fetch a Watery Grave early, even if they don't cast a spell with it. That's probably actually the biggest one that we should have led with. If you see Watery Grave, they're Shadow. If you don't, they're Scam. I would like to say I have experienced a couple times a Shadow player getting Underground C early, reanimating Troll and going, that's enough. Just because that is such a large life total chunk. I mean, it doesn't allow you to directly cast the Death Shadow, but a Fetch Land or a Force of Will allows that Shadow to get on the board, and maybe you don't need that extra damage from your land or whatever. Yeah, just briefly talking about this idea, I, I have played an unhealthy amount of the troll in decks of questionable legacy playability in many cases. The life loss that you, you, you lose from Reanimate is very scary you know you're looking at roughly a third of your life total like you have an amazing evasive threat in play every once in a while you'll just be staring down like turn one dragon rage channeler turn two dragon rage channeler ponder and now you wonder whether or not the creature that you've reanimated is actually going to be fast enough and i've had a lot of legacy games decided very quickly one way or another after the reanimate like you can definitely feel that life total life total loss uh, so hard in current legacy yeah i played a, a bit of a brew it wasn't you know meant to break the metagame uh, it was scam shadow mono black scam shadow on my channel one of the things that i quickly learned like two matches in was that the deck can reduce its life total super low super quick but it doesn't have but only has four shadows it has no ponders or brainstorms to find them because we're mono black if you don't have a shadow to pay out your life loss then you just don't have much life to play the game with. And when you're playing cards like Shocklands and Hatred, Hatred was in that deck, by the way. Count it. Go watch that one. Wild shit. Oh, uh, four copies of Underworld Connections, which drains you out every upkeep for resources. Like uh, this, you can't just fill your deck with stuff like that. Controlling your life total is important. I have both decks up, by the way. The Blue Black Scam deck has four Underground Seas and then one of each basic and a Mystic Sanctuary. The Death Shadow deck has three watery grave, one of each basic, two underground sea. So if you see a third underground sea, you know where you are. Uh, maybe that the game will be late by that point, but if we're playing late into the, the game anyway, that means they haven't successfully scammed us out. They haven't successfully tempoed a giant creature out quickly. So if you're in, if it's turn three, turn four, and you're not sure what you're playing against yet, look at the mana. Uh, just a quick aside while we're still talking about the troll a little piece of technology that I think is cool is these various cycle creatures that go directly to your graveyard work really well at fueling mausoleum secrets. This is one in a black. Search your library for a black card with converted mana costs less than or equal to the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Reveal it, put it into your hand, and then shuffle. Um, so I recently used that as a way to tutor up pieces of like the Witherbloom Apprentice combo. I wonder if something like your mono black shadow decklist would want that as more effective copies of shadow. Yeah, it's probably better than hatred. 
I did, it just shouted that out as a more exciting card, but oh boy, that card is not legacy playable. Let's move on to sort of the uh, the Simic side of the equation. Let's start talking about these blue-green X card advantage tempo shells that have been popping up. Yeah, so historically, when the Days Wasteland decks get a recurring source of card advantage, the format breaks. And people are always trying to figure that out. When Expressive Iteration got banned, we saw people trying stuff like Reckless Impulse or Chart of Course, Predict. People are chasing that high of really good card advantage in a tempo shell. Uh, some adva- some examples of when it went wrong. Uh, Expressive Iteration, just mentioned that one. Dreadhorde Arcanist, Rhinon 6, Ragavan, Oko. Remember all that stuff. Deathrite Shaman's not literally card advantage, but it's mana advantage. And I guess if you count Deathrite Shaman as a shock every turn, like there's just an extra shock in your hand every turn, it can kind of feel like card advantage. I don't know. That one's banned too. But that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And there's currently two different reasonable card advantage engines that fit into blue-green tempo shells. And the first one, Bryant mentioned the inspiration already, Quarian Dru- or Questing Druid based on Quarian Dryad, which was the original uh, Xerox Cantrip Miracle Grow win con. Questing Druid is one in a green for a 1-1 Humid Druid for its instant ability it has seek the beast which is an instant adventure exile the top two cards of your library until your next end step you may play those cards and then the creature's actual ability is whenever you cast a spell that's white blue black or red put a plus one plus one counter on questing druid i'd like to make an important distinction here reckless impulse and Ren's Resolve both exist. People tried to play those cards in Delver Shells. However, both of those cards are sorceries. This card has the text of those two previous cards on it as well. However, it's an instant, which means that you can cast it on your opponent's turn, reveal days or force of will, and then cast those spells. So it being an instant is a huge game changer. Right. And it reads you may cast the spells until the end of your next turn, not until the end of turn. End step, seek the beast, untap with a bunch of cards available is the play pattern. Just the creature text on this card, one in a green for a 1-1 that gets bigger when you cast a white, blue, black, or red spell. That is all of the text and stats on Query and Dryad, which was a legacy or type 1-5 defining card. The creature types are a little different, but in general, that's the same card. And then you just get this upgraded rent resolve on top of it, attached to the same card. And this is a deck that's looking for card advantage, and it's looking for efficient creatures that grow. And this one grows when you cast efficient spells, which is what the deck wants to do. I think we can see how this all fits together. Are we are we caught up? Miracle Grow is back! Yeah, basically, Miracle Grow is... is I mean, that's what they're trying to do here. It's, it's a, a Rug tempo deck. Rug is the, the classic Canadian threshold that became Rug Delver, which was the dominant Delver deck for a very long time. Basically, until we got Deathrite Shaman and Gurmag Angler. Uh, that's when bugs started to become reasonable instead. The Seek the Beast, the adventure on questing Druid, costing 1R, means that you do have to be rugged though, or at least rugged, because obviously the blue cards are required for the shell, and then the two parts of the questing Druid are green and red. So you are locked into rug slash teamer if you want to play this engine. This is one of those times where I randomly have not meaningfully played against this card at all. I've seen my opponents cast it exactly once, and I killed them the next turn. So I have zero data on this card. How has this card felt from the other side of the table? It is a polarizing situation. It is 
not expressive iteration. It, it, it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes I see my opponent exile a land in a force of will and they make their land drop. The force of will just burns off and they pass the turn with a 1-1 in play, but whatever. Sometimes they exile like lightning bolt ponder and they spend their turn pondering and lightning bolting instead of playing the creature. That's another weird thing that I mentioned in my videos because when your opponent casts Seek the Beast, three cards go into exile and can be cast there. The two off Seek to Beast and the thing that's on an adventure. And you can cast the adventure card just whenever, but you only get till the end of turn for the Seek the Beast cards. I don't know if other people's brains will do the same thing as me, but I was like, okay, so they got to cast the Seek the Beast, or they got to cast the Druid this turn, and then they'll cantrip, and then, but they actually don't. If they just flip two cards, they can save the Druid for later. So sometimes it gets a little awkward where it's like they flip two bolts and they just bolt bolt you randomly and don't develop a creature. Sometimes it's just the stone nuts and they can play the creature, ponder, and then play a bobble or hit their land drop. And it does feel like EI plus a creature. It's fine. It is never embarrassing. Sometimes it feels busted. It does require two different colors of mana, neither of which are blue, to use both halves of the thing, and there is some awkward timing on the cards you get. It is worth exploring. I don't think these shells are optimized yet, and I don't know how much we're going to see this thing a year from now, but the first time I saw an opponent cast it on MTGO, I immediately bought four copies for paper play. I was like, oh yeah, this is worth having in the Legacy Stable. It is over that bar pretty easily. So does this feel like maybe a sprite dragon in terms of power level? I think it's better than Sprite Dragon, but it's a lot worse than Expressive Iteration, which is a pretty big gap. I also think it's worse than the card we're going to talk about next. It depends on what colors you want to be in, because we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, I'll circle back to this point when we talk about our next thing, but I do think the Druid is over the bar of playability. I don't know that this is the correct way to build tempo, which is the problem. I'm going to give a slightly different opinion here. I think the card has been impressive most of the times that I've seen it. One of the problems with these sort of effects in the past, and we've had tons of them throughout Magic's history. Obviously, we've had Quirion Dryad, the original, back in Plane Shift. But we've also had like Vinelasher Kudzu, the one that gets bigger with lands. And they've tried these effects throughout history. And they've always had the, the same issue, which is you draw this card late game and it's such a dud. And I think they've actually fixed that problem. This card is average to decent in the beginning of the game. And it's the Stone Cold Nuts as the game progresses. Because if you're casting this on turn five on their end step, you get to untap. And then you get to do the whole, okay, I'll play my dry, or I'm, I'm sorry, my druid. And then I'll play both spells. And... That's not something you ever got to do with Query and Dryad. That was a spell that you had to play it on turn two and then then play all your cantrips. And that's not really the case here. And with the front half, if you're just really looking for land three in a certain matchup or you have to dig for that removal spell, it does that. It goes into your cantrip suite. I don't think that you have to play cards that you're not really excited about anymore. Like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Mishra's Bobble, but I've heard a lot of Delver players say that they're not, and you don't have to play anything like Preordain, because it, it's sort of, it's a hybrid creature cantrip, so that way you get to cut some of those spells that you were never really thrilled to be playing anyway. So, I think it's a huge improvement. I will agree, it's really good on that, like, turn four, turn five situation, where you just need to find some gas. That's exactly where these tempo decks fall off, when they're not drawing actual cards. Like drawing this when you just have four mana, you just tap two of your mana in your main phase even. Seek the beast, and then maybe cantrip twice, maybe play Merktide Regent, maybe hit a land drop, play the druid, 
ponder grow your druid. It gets really good when you can cast everything right away. The spot where it's not great is that like turn three. Like Brian just said, if you really need your land drop, you can fire it off in your main phase turn three. But it's not like EI where your game plan was just use EI to hit your third land drop. You're up a card in your hand forever. The awkward timing does hurt you a bit in the early game. Though I've also played lots of games where my opponent just seeks the beast, cast their the cards that they cast now, and that questing druid is just on an adventure for three or four turns until they're ready for it. In which case, it kind of feels like Luris. Uh, not quite as busted as Luris, obviously, but that feeling you got in Delver Luris games where it's like, I got to deal with everything that's on the board, and this thing is looming. They just get that thing on layaway, and eventually they can add another threat after you've answered all the threats that it drew into. So another thing I'd like to mention is when you look at the composition of these deck lists, okay, so we have Delver of Secrets as a card that typically sees play in these shells. You have Dragon's Rage Channeler, you often have Murktide Regent, and then you have Questing Druid. What is the traditional creature that would see play in these Rug Delver decks? Tarmagoof. Exactly. It's nowhere to be found. And at least as a Storm Degenerate, I would always laugh when my opponent would tap two mana and play a Tarmagoof. It's like, oh, you've mulliganed. Congratulations. Oh, nice Curd Ape. This card is not textless, so you have more opportunities in almost every matchup to be more alive. And I think that's a significant difference. I'm not saying it's a huge upgrade, but you're no longer playing Curd Ape in some matchups. Like, it's just a more flexible card. Yep. I mean, on the flip side, though, it's a lot slower to bash for seven or six or whatever. Like, Tarmogoyf in some matchups is Curd Ape, and in some matchups, it's just Moat plus Lava Axe. And I, I've died to a lot of just like, oh shit, that's a four five. I can't kill that. Uh, I better, you know, figure something out quick. And then you just don't. Uh, where the Druid is a much slower burn, it will get bigger eventually. You are kind of committing to a longer game if you actually want to squeeze every piece of value out of a card like Questing Druid, which is kind of contrary to the day's wasteland start. So it's like, it's not like Tarmogoyf that just costs two. This effectively costs four if you want everything out of it, plus whatever the cards you flip off Seek the Beast cost. And it usually happens over multiple turns. Uh, like Dreadhorde Arcanist, Ren and Six, Ragavan, the actual busted engines, one or two mana, here they are. Force of Will, guess what? You're dead because you couldn't kill it right now. That play pattern is not even possible with this card, which I think is pretty healthy for a card that still clears the bar of playability. I have seen a lot more of a another card, a uh, a certain bean-related uncommon that is uh, is tearing up formats. Thinking about those beans, Phil. Roll that beautiful bean footage, Brian. It's been rolling in my head for the last three, four weeks, however long we've had this card. Oh boy, do I love Up the Beanstalk. I love this card because it's playable in control decks because you're willing to go long and, you know, when your Terminus and your Force of Will starts cantripping, it's beautiful. And it's also good in these tempo decks because let me tell you, your Murktide Regents and Hooting Mandrels, oh yeah, Hooting Mandrels is back. When those start cantripping... Like, that feels really good. And when you can rebuy some cards and get that card advantage to make up for the fact that you yeeted a bunch of cards into your graveyard early to fuel your delve cards, or you aggressively, like, wastelanded and forced early on in the game, you have a good endgame card advantage engine in your tempo deck at the cost of playing a handful of enchantments. I have a question, and I... 
I asked this to Brian last week because I'll be honest, I'm sort of uneducated on this topic. So if you're playing up the Beanstalk, a card that wants high mana value spells in your deck, what is your ideal number of cards that triggers this? Because I saw some lists floating around. They had three Merktide Regent, which automatically like made me take it back. I was like, wow, only three. And then they had three of the Hooting Mandrills and four Force of Will. Is 10 cards enough to make it worthwhile to play Beanstalk. But then, I mean, I understand there's other advantages to playing this card. Obviously, it helps with Delirium. But how often are you expecting this card to trigger once it's in play? So the thing is, since it draws a card when it enters the battlefield in the first place, as soon as you draw off of it the first time by casting a spell, you start getting ahead. And it feels like cheating once you draw the second card off of it. And especially considering that the up the beanstalks are cumulative, like that card is not legendary or anything like that. So like later on in the game, you can play a force of will that double cantrips. It doesn't take a lot. 10 is probably the the number that I would be comfortable with. Um, I've got a deck list up right now. That's three Merktide, two Mandrels, four force of will, and uh, one magmatic sinkhole. That's that's a throwback. That's five and a red for an instant with delve. It deals five damage to target creature or planeswalker. I played that list, and magmatic sinkhole still sucks ass, but it does trigger the beanstalk. And Phil hit the the point on the head, which is this thing cantrips on the way in. If it didn't. I think this card would be very close to unplayable, but the fact it just replaces itself instantaneously and then the first spell you cast into it, you're moving ahead. I posted a screenshot on Twitter earlier this week where I was forced of willing something and I triggered four beanstalks and just drew four cards. Like, that That is unreasonable. If you're dr- drawing one card, the, when you draw the first card, you're happy. When you draw the second card, you're going nuts. And if you have two beanstalks, that just scale so much faster. I actually had a league where I was concerned about decking myself because I had three beanstalks in play and 16 cards in my deck and all of my Merktide regents were still in those 16 cards. And I was like, well, I hope I only need one of these to win the game with. Even Force to Protect it might deck me, which is a crazy place to get to in a a tempo Merktide region deck. So um, going over to the control side briefly, um, I 5-0'd with a bean control deck list, and I believe I had 11 things that could cantrip off of it. That's 11 things that could, and I'm counting four copy of Lorien Revealed, which I don't intend to cast for the full five mana most of the time. T- turns out that like getting an island for one mana and shuffling your Ponder or Brainstorm is just good enough. That's fine, I guess, but if I'm registering a Beanstalk control deck, I am absolutely counting my Lorien Revealed in my five mana spells. I, 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 they're also lands. I consider the lands as the flavor text and draw three to seven cards is is the actual text on that one phil has never cast tidings and it shows <laughs> yeah it seems like it but he did 5-0 in spite of that so this card must be good even though he's thinking about his cards completely wrong uh, uh another cool thing which we're kind of in a wormhole here anyway on the control builds there are a number of x spells getting played in legacy control decks right now like Fourth Aerolingus and Green Sun Zenith and Prismatic Ending. And if you're playing long games anyway, those won't trigger your Beanstalks on turn three, but they will on turn five. You can spend five on a Prismatic Ending to answer a two drop if it builds you a cantrip on a stable board. That's a a piece of deck building that I've been pretty excited about. Like, obviously you're going to elbow tap whatever you can into a Fourth Aerolingus, but even if you're, if you want your Leovold 
out of Green Sun Zenith. If you have the extra mana, might as well Zenith for four. Draw a card on the way through and then get Leovold. Uh, help me out with the name of this card. What's the name of the White March card? March of Swirling Mist. Or no, that's the no. blue one. March Otherworldly of, uh, Light. Thank you. Otherworldly Light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ask yeah. the Campbell player, Phil, next time, please. Thank you. That is a card that I have seen a lot more of recently since it is very realistic to cantrip with that off of Up the Beanstalk. Also, Leyline Binding. Remember when Watsi told us that was going to save Legacy from Expressive Iteration? Well, it didn't, but that card is actually really good without the Beanstalk, it turns out. So we're seeing some new cards, or, or some fringe cards, or some old cards like Hooting Mandrills, Magmatic Sinkhole, and Leyline Binding making their way into decks. Uh, let's go back to Tempo, just pull the ship back onto its course here a little bit. A really cool thing about Up the Beanstalk is that it's just a green card. Questing Druid is a red card also, if you want all the modes out of it. And people did seem to default to Rug or Teamer as the go-to Beanstalk tempo deck. I have a video coming out. It'll be on my channel by the time you're all hearing this. Uh, Pokemoki is at it again, emerged from playing Flesh and Blood to attack the Legacy metagame by once again teaching people that black cards exist and where the blue command is busto. Uh, Saltai, Beanstalk Tempo, I think is really good. And Witherbloom Command kills enemy Beanstalks, kills Chalice of the Void, picks up your Wasteland, fuels your graveyard for the Murktides and Murderous Cuts that are in your deck to trigger your Beanstalks. Don't get stuck in Rug just because that's what people are doing. I played the, the Rug deck and my conclusion at the end was it's good but I don't think it's the best Beanstalk deck, and I don't think it's the best Dragon's Rage Channeler deck. And Pokemoki had independently come to the same conclusion, and just, if Dragon's Rage Channeler isn't good here, why are we even trying? Let's just play Orcish Bowmaster and raise the curve slightly. And I think Saltai is really good. I haven't explored Bant, but that's another three-color wedge that we can play Beanstalk Tempo with and just play different cards. So uh, the world is, is open on Beanstalk in a way that it's not open on Questing Druid. You are locked into a wedge. On that one, where Beanstalk, you got some choices. So notably, since the Beanstalk builds are looking to go a little bit bigger, and they're often playing more Delve cards, these slots in the other version that are maybe going towards cards like Delver of Secrets, like they just don't have room for that anymore. So if you see up the Beanstalk, you're probably not going to see Delvers. Right. Also, up the Beanstalk doesn't trigger Delver, and kind of the point of Delver is that your whole deck is full of instant and sorceries that draw cards. And if your main draw engine is an enchantment that lowers the density for Delver, Delver doesn't trigger the Beanstalk. There's just no synergy there at all. So Delver will not be appearing in any Beanstalk decks, which is why I think the Rug one, only playing Dragon's Reach Channeler, is kind of disjointed because you have four cards in your deck that can play the Wasteland Days game with a one drop instead of eight, which massively reduces the likelihood you get to spike that. Just working on a higher curve in a different color spread makes a lot of sense to me. though. The questing druid list is really interesting because I have seen successful posted league 5-0 or tournament top 8 lists that include 0, 2, 3, and 4 copies of Delver. All numbers except for 1 are represented among the Delver split. Questing druid, rug Delver, or rug tempo builders have not figured that one out yet. That's still being worked. I also feel like people are still mucking around with the number of Uros you're supposed to play. Like, your your graveyard can only take so much of a beating, so I don't know that you can get away with, like, Hooting Mandrels and Murktide and Uro all at the same time. Like, that's a lot, but Uro is such a good pivot plan. It's, like, a great piece of 
additional inevitability. It's a little bit of life gain when you sometimes need that. I'm not sure where we're supposed to settle on that. The Uro trigger that puts lands into play in your days deck is also a nice way to recoup early resources spent on a tempo play, and then you catch back up in the mid game. I do not think you'll see Uro in a lot of Beanstalk control decks, at least not ones like this. The, or the Beanstalk control decks that are playing Prismatic Ending Solitude, Terminus, Force of War, whatever, you can play Uro. In these tempo decks that have the Hooting Mandrels, the Murktide Regent, the Murder's Cut, the Magmatic Sinkhole, that's too much going on in your graveyard. I don't think you'll see Uro in those. Uro is blue-green, and so is the core engine of these various strategies that we've talked about in this section of the pod, and Uro could show up in any of them. And Life of the Loam can show up in any of them. And Life from the Loam, in a deck that plays Wasteland anyway, and also is motivated to fill its graveyard with cards anyway, uh, Loam, I would expect to actually see one copy in a lot of these lists, somewhere in the 75. Another card that I've really liked out of these decks is Minskin Boo from the sideboard. That card is horrifying. And when you get to, when you exhaust a lot of your early game resources on the Dragon Raid Channelers, maybe the first Murktide Regent, and you don't have the resources to deal with a Minskid Boo that comes down, that thing often effectively or literally ends the game in two turns. Phil, I think it does something else as well. We've been describing playing Murktide Regent and Hooting Mandrills, but both of those, as you said, there's your graveyard is being taxed. If you're a controlled person like Brian, maybe you're looking at Rest in Peace, and all of a sudden you're saying, all I have to do is answer four copies of Dragon's Rage Channeler. Minsk and Boo doesn't use the graveyard really, or at all, and you can you know move away from that angle of being attacked into something else. So I think it's a pretty smart pivot. Yep. The olden days where Rest in Peace just checked Rug Delver. Uh, Rug Delver's threats back in the day were Delver, Nimble Mongoose, Tarmogoyf, Hooting Mandrels. Three of those just don't even work with Rest in Peace in play, and then you just got to deal with Delvers. We are kind of treading back into that territory. If you are too reliant on Delve spells, you could be in trouble. That league I mentioned that I played Saltai Beanstalk Tempo in, somebody did mull to five to find a ley line of the Void and zeroed it against me. And luckily they mulled to five, so they were playing on a four card hand, and I was able to figure it out eventually but that really took the wind out of my sails i had like two merc tides and a murder scut sitting in my hand basically the whole game and if they had done anything more than they did if they had kept that same hand out of seven i probably don't win that game so make sure you respect that at least a little bit with some of the threats in your deck earlier i talked a lot about how the leagues were saturated with this rug tempo deck they're also very very saturated with the black prison deck featuring beseech the mirror and that deck has four main deck copies of leyline of the void on top of dothy voidwalker so that's eight ways to clear the graveyard of this rug tempo deck so i mean those effects are still out there even if they're not rest in peace Right. And back in the Rug Delver heyday, there were decks that played like Rest in Peace plus Energy Field as just hard control. And then they combo killed you eventually with Helm of Obedience in this like Enlightened Tutor package. That was a smart meta choice based on how the attacking decks of the age actually attacked. If this black deck is going to be out there and people like it, if Phil keeps pushing his horrible propaganda to play these suspicious decks. These Their deck's actually good. I just don't like playing against them. If people are going to be out there doing that, at least make sure you have some answer or some way to win the game or some removal. Like Even if it's just like a couple Brazen Borrowers in your main deck, make sure you can answer hard graveyard hate if you're all in on being delving. Brian, if you want to attack people that play one drops in their Chalice of the Void deck, I'm not going to stop you. Like If you want to go ahead, just like go on a tangent, man. I am here for it. The old... uh. Dark Ritual, Trinisphere, Go line 
nobody plays magic for three turns. Yeah, love those decks. Or Dark Ritual into Chalice of the Void, and then you draw another Dark Ritual ever. Yeah, shout out to, to Reaple Cheap. I, I will always be a fan of, but holy smokes, those decks are not for me. All right, as we wrap up our episode here, let's talk about Crashing Footfalls and Teamer Cascade. So we have this listed as a tempo deck. I find that kind of funny because you go into any legacy community, you will never get the same answer from three different people on if this is a tempo deck, a control deck, or a combo deck. Like, I've even heard, like, it's everything. Obviously a tempo deck. It's not even close to a conversation. There's eight fucking spirit guides in this deck list. There are eight spirit guides and force of will in this deck. What are we talking about? It wins through combat. This is literally the most pure tempo deck we've talked about yet. There was like a pretty, I don't want to say healthy because it wasn't healthy. It was like a feisty conversation in the Storm Discord. They're like, it's just show and tell. This is a combo deck. And people are like, no, it's an aggro deck. And like, personally, in my own like cyborg guide, I have it under control. Here we are saying it's tempo. People are pretty opinionated about this. I don't feel strongly one way or another, but. You've got fire ice in this deck list to tap down fucking lands to buy time for your rhinos to make rhino noises at people. It's a goddamn tempo deck. Yeah, I, I think this is, uh, if we are you know, going back to our original thesis at the top of the episode that tempo exchanges long-term resources for short-term advantage, how about spending a land, two spirit guides, and force blue card to put 10 power into play on turn one? Sounds like a combo deck. And if your opponent plays Ratchet Bomb, the game is over. Uh, if they don't, the game is won. Yeah, that sounds like a combo deck. I don't believe that to be true because how often is Swords of Pleasure is good against combo decks? Brian, I'm just trolling. Like, uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I, we're just potting here. I'm not mad at you. So this deck is exploitable. If you counter the Rhino spell, they have just invested a bunch of resources in either a 2-2 Shardless Agent or nothing at all in the form of Violent Outburst. If the thing resolves, you can still just like prismatic ending, prismatic ending and be stable, which is a two for one, but still they're not bashing you anymore. And now you're over the combo hump. You got out of the squeeze. They tried to shove the game into a little can and you broke out of it. And now their deck is a lot worse moving forward than yours. This is, I think I said it twice already, but I think this is the purest execution of tempo that we've seen uh, in in like any format for a long time. Uh, the, I guess Pioneer Spirits, probably a great example too. Uh, there's a couple, but like, to me, this does fudge a little into combo space in Legacy when you get the eight spirit guides. This has been a top three modern deck for the last year and a half, two years, however long people have figured this out since. Uh, but they don't have spirit guides in that format. They don't have force of will in that format. They really do have to just present two rhinos, protect two rhinos, present another two rhinos if the first two get answered and really dance back and forth around it, which in Legacy, doing it on turn one with force backup feels like combo. So uh, maybe I'm tainted by my experience in Modern, where this is a beautiful, pure tempo deck. I still think we're we're in that category here pretty safely. Also, practically, when the chips are down and you need to defeat this rhino deck and need to have a sideboard plan and know how this deck plays, doesn't matter. You just need to beat the Rhydos until you're stable. And it doesn't matter what it actually is. What makes it feel like a tempo deck to me is that they have eight main deck free counter spells. And then in the cyborg games, they have force of figures. There's so much free interaction in this deck. And from a combo player's perspective, that's what tempo playing against tempo feels like. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter that they tap up because they still have, you know, three free counter spells in their hand that has 
five cards in it. And this is what that deck feels like. I think the only thing that feels a little bit weird to me is that this deck also, and I'm not, I'm not trying to shove another wedge in here, but it accelerates into Blood Moon in some matchups just to lock people out. I, I don't think it's a prison deck, but it is a really powerful axis that this deck has that the other tempo decks we've discussed so far in this episode do not have. Right. Historically, we have some precedent for this. Uh, in the past, like, is it Delver builds have played Blood Moon? Many Delver decks and Tempo decks have played Winter Orb. Uh, we kind of get the same vibe when the Tempo deck needs to slow down or needs to find another Axis after board. Uh, but but yeah, turn one Blood Moon with Force Backup is a, a thing this deck can do. And I want to talk about like why this deck gets away with that. Because like this is a three basic land deck. That means you have two basic lands that function under a Blood Moon, right? The printing of Lorien Revealed gives you four more effective copies of your basic island, making it much less risky to just go all in on an early Blood Moon because you will have a better chance at finding your basic or even just finding an Elvish Spirit Guide to let you play a Minsk and Boo or whatever to kind of get the game going. Yeah, seven of this deck's nine fetch lands get forest, and then you have the Forlorian Reveals to find the island. You can still Shardless Agent, you can still Violent Outburst pretty easily with a Blood Moon in play. Plus, the Elvish Spirit Guide can get you to Violent Outburst even under Blood Moon. If you have the island, the Spirit Guide fixes that too. This deck's really good at playing under its own Blood Moons. Yeah, and just going back to the free spells for a minute, deck often has Endurance in the main, additional copies in the side, and Fury is somewhat common in the sideboard as well. Even if you can't physically cast some of your spells for their full mana cost, you often still have plays. And another thing they can do in turn one, Hall Breacher. Get wrecked. There's just so many cool things this deck can do, though the cool things this deck can do are limited by the fact that your only spells that cost less than three can be the Rhino spells, or else the engine doesn't work anymore, which means they don't get Delver, they don't get Daze, and they choose not to play Wasteland. And this is the biggest divergence, kind of the, the impetus for this episode was all these tempo decks, and only one of them really plays Delver. This one doesn't play Daze or Wasteland either. This is a totally new face of tempo in the Legacy format. And we mentioned and we mentioned Minsk and Boo on the last one. Guess what? We got that one too. And it can show up on turn one or two. Uh, this deck is really cool. And it took a while to adopt from modern. Like I said, it's been a top three modern deck for a year or two. And it only gets better with Spirit Guides and Force of Will. This is a very cool port. And I'm happy it's around. And uh, I'm glad Wizards keeps printing ways to diversify the, the established pillars of Legacy. Do you think that this build is coming more to power more recently because it's almost immune to Orcish Bowmasters? Like, Bowmasters doesn't kill your Rhinos, you don't play the Cantrip Cartel, you don't play Bobbles, Brainstorm Ponders, you don't play any of that. So Bowmasters is kind of, t I don't want to say it's textless, like you get two chump blockers, but they die to fire. The rhinos rhinos. trample, it yeah. doesn't matter. A big part of this deck is that it is almost completely immune to Bowmasters. Uh, like Bryant said, you don't get cantrips. You can't play cantrips. Uh, the closest thing to a cantrip is your Lorien Reveals. And if you're at that phase of the game, let's party. Uh, the deck plays four Fire Ice, which is a clean answer to Bowmaster and its friend. The pair of four four tramples don't care about your two one ones. Uh, this is a really clever juke on the metagame. All right, folks. So those are your faces of tempo in Legacy right now expect things to change a little bit more from here as a lot of these deck lists aren't really finalized have your eye on these as we start trending towards eternal weekend 